the lifestyle that I've been able to create for me and my wife. I think I I try not to take it for granted, but I, I think sometimes I don't think about it so much. But it's I, I'm really privileged to be in a situation where I get to work when I want, however many hours I want. I work with whom I want, and 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 she doesn't have to work if she doesn't want to. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Roberto Chavez. Roberto is a land investor and part of the Land Geek community. Today, Roberto is going to share his journey into how he was able to transition from being a corporate attorney to buying and selling raw land. And today he has completed over a hundred different transactions. We've had a lot of folks on the on the podcast talk about this space, but I want you to pay close attention to how Roberto was able to transition from W2 work into a fully passive uh, investing model. So I'm just going to stop there and say, Roberto, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off everybody with the most difficult question here. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, I mean, I don't I don't discriminate much when it comes to ice cream. And so uh, but recently I've gone into the halo tops because uh, I can indulge a whole little pint and it's not that many calories. So I the cookies and cream halo top, I think, is right now the the one that's been that's been getting the most love recently. You, you are my spirit animal because I had someone tell me about halo top, which for those of you that don't know, is like a non dairy gluten-free, healthy ice cream that only a pint, a pint only has like 160 calories or something like that. So yeah. I have gotten on them. They don't taste as healthy as they sound. It is delicious. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you, here's my problem though, is I throw a bunch of like peanut butter cups and chocolate sauce <laughs> on it. And all of a sudden I've just negated the entire healthy portion of it. Do you put toppings on it? No, no, I'll get like the, the like cookies and cream or maybe they're like chocolate chip ones and they already have a little bit of an extra little crunch to them that that makes it more flavorful. So I'll, I'll, I'll usually leave them the way they are or I'll try to throw in a muffin maybe or put some ice cream on a muffin and stuff like that. But usually just straight from the straight from the bin. <laughs> I love it. Do you have now have you had the birthday cake one of theirs? I did not like that one. You I, are you are my identical twin then because that <laughs> is the only one. If you're listening to this show right now and you haven't had Halo Top and you see the birthday cake one, do not get the birthday cake one. It is not. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't cream. able to finish it. I think I might still have it in the in the freezer because I tried it. And it, it, it yeah, that that they messed up the recipe on that one because generally I think like 80, 90 percent of them are pretty good. But there's a few, including that one, that just they they didn't know what they were doing. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I I even tried to throw it and like make a milkshake out of it, and I I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Um, well, Roberto, tell our listeners what's the scoop. What do you do today? So today I am 100 percent uh, investing in land. So I buy land uh, cents on the dollar. And then I turn around and the majority of my deals are owner financed. So I get a down payment up front. And then uh, the idea is to build that passive income. So I get monthly payments uh, every month, varying anywhere from, I mean, a year to 10 years, uh, depending on, on the property, on the amount, on the, on the buyer. I, I, I let the buyer kind of dictate a lot of that uh, 
and the market dictate what what they're willing to pay for it. And I'm, I'm pretty flexible on that end. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get into that uh, model of how you turn transactions into passive income. But before we get there, tell our listeners, where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah, so I mean, my first exposure to, to real estate, I mean, surprisingly, I, 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 um, I went to law school in Austin and, and I there were some real estate classes there, but it just didn't interest me. I didn't think real estate was fun or uh, for some reason, it just didn't appeal to me. I was all in the international transactions and that was kind of my cup of tea when I was when I was in school. Uh, but when I when I came back home to to El Paso, I realized that I needed to to start doing something other than just my W two, and so as most people uh, have done probably before, the easiest thing was to move into a house for a couple of months and then just rent it out. That way, I was just giving five percent down, um, and then I started renting it, and I did that three times. I did it with a, with a business partner. And so we we started um, to have a little bit of passive income come from what was left between the rent and the mortgage, uh, but it was a little bit slow uh, for my taste in terms of wanting to uh, separate myself from the W-2. And so that's kind of what led me down the path of podcast and just hearing what options were out there. And I happened to stumble upon uh, the Lange community and it it, it really spoke to me and uh, I jumped on it as quickly as I could. And then uh, the rest is history. I mean, I've been, I've been with them for a while now. So now I've been able to just do that full time. Yeah. So I, I want to go into the, the putting 5% down. So since you were living in these homes, were those FHA loans then that you were able to acquire or were they just community bank loans? How were you able to get 5% down on them? Yeah, they were they were credit unions. It was done through through credit unions, so they're they're a little bit more lenient uh, when it comes to to those kinds of terms. And so, uh, yeah, it, I was able to do it through that. Actually, one of them, if I remember correctly, this was in 2017 or 2016. I can't remember. Uh, I think one of them was only requiring even three percent. Um, yeah. So it was a pretty pretty nice deal. Yeah, my first deal I ever did was in 2009. Uh, I was right at coming out of the recession. I got an FHA loan on it. So I put three and a half percent down. And that's when the government was paying you $8,000 to go buy houses. So three and a half percent on my $150,000 property was right at $8,000. So basically they paid me to buy a house. Still on the house today, it's appreciated 150%, makes me like 600 bucks a month. And it's one of the best and it's basically an infinite return on investment. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great deal. Did you know you were going to rent yours out when you first got them or did you did that just evolve? Talk us through that a little bit. It, it kind of evolved. The idea was to do that eventually, but it was uh, houses were relatively cheap uh, back in 2016, 2017. So it, it, more than anything, I thought it was a good deal and it was a good idea just to start putting money aside on that and with the idea to eventually buy a couple more. Uh, but but it, it I, of course, had that in mind, uh, and that was the idea of that specific property eventually to become a rental home. Uh, so it, it was with an eye of, of doing that from the beginning, for sure. Yeah. Yep. And then did you do house hacking where you rented out any of the rooms, or did you just buy that and, and, and after it was time to move on, turn it into a rental? Yeah, that's what I did the second one. I, I, yeah, it's, it's a three bedroom. I, I don't know. I didn't 
feel very comfortable <laughs> having somebody else live in there. And so I just waited that till I moved out and, and started renting it out. Yeah, I inadvertently, same house, had a roommate who paid like 60, 70% of the mortgage, which I didn't realize how much wealth creation that was early on in my yeah. career. Until okay. now, looking back on it, I'm like, wow, there for you know three years, I basically lived mortgage-free almost. Uh, and now I still own the home today. So it's, it's been a great process for me. Um, you mentioned that you then went and bought another house and another house, and then you stopped at three. Why did you stop at three? Help us understand that. There's really no reason. So the, the third one, actually, we still had the other one. And so the third one was an investment property from the beginning. And so we had to put 20% down, uh, which at the time, I, I can remember, might have been $30,000, $40,000, something like that. And uh, to me, personally, that, 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 that really shed light on how expensive it was going to be to grow that specific business. And so there really wasn't a, a, a direct reason. I think at that time, prices starting, started to go up. Um, and so I just decided that I wanted to find something that was more scalable uh, with less money. And so that, that's just basically it. Yeah, I think um, part of my story is I, got, I built my single family portfolio out to 10 units and two things happened. One, I started running out of cash. I, I had to wait longer times to go acquire properties versus I had been accumulating cash all along my journey and it was able to pull the trigger quickly on those first 10. And then the second thing is I ran out of bank loans. So Fannie and Freddie stop lending money after you have 10 uh, investment properties, because then you're not, they're not going to subsidize those loans. So you have to go get creative, whether it's credit unions, private money, life insurance yeah. loans, things like that. Um, so I had to look into different ways on how I was going to generate cash. And you you fell onto the land investing business. Um, for our listeners, and this, this, that's, this is their first time, they've never heard of land investing. Can you give us a high level overview of what is the model for land investing? Sure. So the, the, the whole idea is to go and find raw land. It's undeveloped land uh, that people are not interested in holding on to it anymore. So this is usually somebody that's that's an older gentleman or an older lady or somebody just inherited this property or they're just tired of it or they got it 20 years ago and they never ended up using it. There could be thousands of reasons why somebody doesn't want to hold on to that property anymore. And it's very inefficient to give it to a broker because those properties aren't in the range where a broker really wants to get involved in that. And so it's, it's easy for you as a land investor to go in there and pick these properties up, uh, pennies on the dollar, uh, 25 cents, 30 cents on the dollar, and then you turn around and you market them. And so you go and you can market to the entire world, basically, uh, these properties and make it very, very irresistible for people to go and buy them because you offer it at terms that are really hard to resist, whether it's $1.99 a month, $2.99 a month, just $3.50 down. And there's a lot of people out there that like to own property just for the sake of owning it, or they have a dream of building something on it, or they want to give it to their kids. Uh, so there's there's the same way there's a lot of people that want to get rid of their properties. There's a lot of people that want to buy properties for whatever reason. And the land investor is here to connect the two and, and make a buck out of it. Yep. Yep. I love it. Is there, when you're looking at for properties, is there a typical size of property you're looking at? Like 
you mentioned being too small for a broker. So uh, if you get on some of these land.com and things like that, I'm all the time looking at 100,000 acres in Montana. And I know as a broker, you would love to sell that property, yeah. but is there a <laughs> typical size that you find brokers aren't interested really in helping sell that property? Yeah, I think anything that's going to sell for less than 20,000, I feel brokers really don't want to mess with it. Because uh, at that point, if it's 3%, I mean, I, I think if they're if they're willing to sign up to sell something that's 20 or less, they're probably going to want more than their typical 3 to 6% commission. Uh, so, but but I, I really don't see brokers getting involved in anything that's below 20. If you start looking at properties that are above that, then you start seeing them in the MLS and, and other places uh, marketed by, by brokers. But that's really, that that's a, that's a different niche right there. I mean, I, I bet you can make a lot of money with properties over $50,000 that you can find a better buyer for it. Uh, but, but that's really not what we're doing. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, 3% on $20,000 is 600 bucks. Like if yeah. you're a broker, I mean, once you pay tax on that money, you probably can't even live for the week by selling a property. So that kind yeah. of makes sense. I've never heard anybody explain it that way. Yeah, it's 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 they'd have to sell a lot of them or you have to give them your entire portfolio. And, and at that point, they're kind of doing the business for you because that that's the model. You're 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 getting rid of the middleman. Uh, you are becoming the one in the middle. And so you're dealing directly with the seller and directly with the buyer. Nobody gets a commission. It's just whatever you, the difference is. That, and that's what you're keeping. Yep. Yep. So um, anytime we're talking about wholesaling or land flipping or anything like that, we're talking about like finding a distressed buyer and really trying to solve that problem for them. Any tactics or uh, tips that you could share on how you're able to find your distressed buyers? Are you the distressed sellers, you mean? Uh, sellers. Yes. I'm sorry. Distressed sellers. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's the best way to find them is, is trying to find who's delinquent on their back taxes. That's kind of the number one rule uh, that anybody starting this business should probably follow because that's kind of the low laying fruit. Low hanging fruit is people who aren't paying their taxes, who live outside of the county or the state where that property is located are more likely willing to sell their property than somebody who's up to date with their taxes and who lives next door to the property. Uh, and so if you're able to locate those people, chances are you're more likely to be able to buy that property from them. That's not to say, I mean, people, you'll be surprised, people who pay their taxes on time, if you give them a decent offer, they're willing to sell their property as well. Uh, but but the low hanging fruit are those people who who haven't paid taxes and who don't live in the same city or state where the where the property is located. Yeah. And I'm assuming you get that from the county records or is there yes. are there other tools out there that you use to find those? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I go through the county. I know there's services out there. Uh, 24. Um, I can't remember the name. It's Agent Pro 24 seven Agent Pro, I think it is uh, that provide that information. But the county is the most up to date um, information. Uh, it's it it could be a little tricky to get the 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 list from the county. You kind of have to talk to the right person to make sure that they provide you with the correct information. And sometimes they'll just send you everything. And so there there comes a lot of the headache um, of having to uh, sort through the list and, and getting out all the residential, all the commercial and just filtering it just for the raw land. And that's where 
a lot of, of hiring VAs and implementing systems and, and having systems in place really comes in handy because I, I'm, I don't do that anymore. I, I did it at the beginning. I learned how to do it. And then I taught a guy in the Philippines how to do it. And he's doing it for, for five bucks an hour. And, and I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you find that guy in the Philippines through the land geek community or did you go out there and hire him and shoot videos to train them? Like, how did you, how did you get that? This is something I struggle with is I, I bring on VAs and then I, I'm not effective at communicating what I need, I guess. So I'm trying to pull out, how are you able to do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm loom is my best friend. I, I use loom for everything. Uh, and, and I kind of have a, a library of videos but uh, the, the Langeek program helps you formulate the, the, the job description of what you're looking for. But then it is your job to go out and find the, the guy. I find, I find him on Upwork. Uh, and so I, I put the posting up. I hired maybe at that time, I hired maybe two to three guys and I gave them all the same task. And I said, I mean, I was willing, it's not that expensive. So I was willing to incur the cost. And then whoever gave me the best product is the one I ended up hiring. And fortunately, I know there's a lot of turnaround with people on Upwork, but fortunately I've been able to work with him for a while now. So uh, yeah, that's, it was through Upwork and it does take some time. Sometimes you've got to get a little lucky in finding the right one and, and, and being able to work with them. But it's just, I mean, eventually you'll find them if, 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 if you keep looking. Yeah. Loom is a fantastic tool. I'm trying to incorporate it more and more into my day to day because it's a tool where you can send a video message and show your screen at the same time. So for a lot of these task oriented jobs that you do, uh, it's a good tool to leverage and, and teach somebody without having to be there or be on the phone with them. And the best part mm -hmm. about it is once it's recording up in the cloud, then somebody could go grab it at any point at any time. Uh, if you gave them access to it, you don't have to be there to teach them. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a Chrome extension. So it just, it's just a button on the top of your, your screen. So it's, it's really convenient. Yep. Yep. Um, so you mentioned uh, finding distressed sellers and um, how do you market to them? Like what's your strategy on around getting them to call you back to, to accept your offer, to open up a dialogue or a conversation? I send them letters. It's just plain and simple. Once I have the list from the County, I know what their address is and I'll send out hundreds of letters. And it's, it's a numbers game at that point because it's the same letter to everybody. It's of course a different offer amount depending on the size of the property and the location of the property. That's where you have to do a little bit of, of due diligence to, to make sure you're, uh, you're not overpaying or underpaying depending on, on how much you wanna sell the property for. So it's, it's a numbers game. And so I send anywhere from 800 to 1,000 letters a month. And then I get a 1% to 3% response rate. And that's people that reach out and say, hey, I like your offer or no, but I'll sell it for X. And then that's where the conversation starts. And we start having a dialogue with them and determine what kind of access the property has. Are they truly the owners? I mean, and this, this could get into a whole different conversation, which is due diligence uh, and making sure that who you're talking to is actually the owner of the property and you can, you can buy it from them. Yeah, we're getting to the due diligence part. Don't worry, I got some questions around that. But um, <laughs> before we get there, so 800 to 1,000 letters a week sounds like a ton of letters that, and I'm sure your, your tongue would get cut from all the paper that you're looking there to send those out. 
I'm assuming that you all have a system or you have a system for how you do that. Um, and then how do you receive the call? So I guess a two-part question, how, do, how did you automate the sending out the letters and making yeah. sure that they're noticeable for the person that's receiving them? And then how do you uh, uh, automate or handle the intake from those letters, that one to 3% response rate? Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's, there's, there's two stories to that. The, the first, when I started, I was, I was actually signing every single letter, like a, that I was signing 25 letters a day and putting them in the mail. Uh, and so that was, and I, at one point I delegated that, uh, my mom stopped working. And so I would send her all this stuff and she was helping me with the mailing. I said, hey, mom, you want to do this? I'll pay you a little bit. You just got to do this. Uh, so she started doing that for, for a while, but no, eventually, um, there there's through, through the Langig program, there's, there's something called LG pass, which is where you upload all the information for the potential sellers. And then that connects to lob, which lob is the company that actually sends out the letters to the potential sellers. And so I'll tell you the way I have it now. So I upload everything to LG Pass. It's sent to Lob. Lob mails the letters. The letters have not my phone number anymore, but my VA, my intake manager's phone number. So he's the one that's getting the calls. And then we have a special email and then a fax number that it's an, it's an app. It's a fax app. And, um, and our address is, is a PO box. It's a virtual mailbox. And so anything that comes back through a regular mail goes to the virtual mailbox. We get a notification. If it's a fax, we get a notification. If it's a phone call, my intake manager gets that call. Um, and uh, I think those are it. And basically he's the one that talks to them, sees how much they want, gets does a little bit of most of the due diligence and then sends me a report and says, hey, we've got this guy. He's willing to sell for 3000 bucks. Here's the location of the property. Here are the deeds. Here's what we got. What do you want to do? And then I give him the green light or I say, no, we have to buy it for less or whatever. And, and he does most of that negotiation with the seller. And then once we end up buying it, um, depends on the county, but as, as long as we can get a scanned copy of the deed, we can record that. Once it's recorded, we send the check to the seller. Um, and so when I say one to 3% response rate, that's where the one to three is. Some pan out, some don't. I mean, it just depends. Yeah. The, um, that's what I love about the land geek model specifically is there is always a system and some part that's plugging in to automate as much as possible, the faxing and the, the calling in and the sending to a virtual PO box. And then that get that virtual PO box, I assume sends you an email where you can see what their response is. Like I've got one. So it's, that's beautiful. There is your um is your intake manager the same VA that you mentioned earlier in the Philippines? No, it's a different person. Are, are so, they... so my intake manager, uh, he lives in 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 San Marcos, Texas. So uh, I him I did meet through the Langeek program a while ago, but uh, I want my intake manager to be fluent in English and have some sales skills and he has to be a little bit more than just kind of your uh, list scrubbing guy that yeah. you could hire somebody in the Philippines for 350 an hour him it's it's uh, it's a little bit more sophisticated in what he has to do and 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 the task that he has to do and communicate with people so 
that's kind of the first part of the business that shows its face. In other words, meaning that he's representing me. So he's really good and I'm, I'm really happy to have him, but he's been helping me for a while now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, County and state, where are you looking for these properties and where do you play and where do you not play? So for instance, I'm assuming you're not looking for rural land in Maine, maybe you are, but you're also in a great state of Texas where so many people are moving right now that this is, this could be a booming model. So any tips or tricks around the states that you, you look to, uh, to do this in? I mean, if you look at the map of the U.S., the west side is where the Midwest and west side of the country is where there's most of the vacant land. I mean, if you move east, I, I've, other than Florida, where I know there's plenty of land investors, I, I really haven't, um, I haven't gone and checked to see how much potential there is in the more northeastern, eastern states. Uh, but I mean, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Colorado. I mean, these are states that if you look, they have a lot of undeveloped land and just rural land that's out there for the taking. And uh, I, I read the, the statistic. I, I think there's thousands of counties. I, I can't remember the number, but it, there's thousands of counties. And somebody can make, can just work on two, three counties for their entire life and make a great living. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's very, it's going to be very hard to saturate the market is what I'm trying to say. So there's, there's enough for, for plenty of people to, to join and, and, and do this business. Yeah. Um, it, and then the next question I wanted to ask was the due diligence process. So we hinted on that before of scrubbing the list and checking deeds and things like that. What are some of the things that you're looking for in the due diligence process and what is a red flag for you? The, the biggest red flag for me personally, I, I, what I've seen that kind of turns buyers off is uh, not having legal or direct access to the property. Having said that, there's plenty of people who are willing to buy landlocked properties for whatever reason. Uh, they just want to have the land and if it's cheap enough for them, they'll buy it. So, I mean, the, everything is worth buying if the price is right, because eventually it'll sell. It's just a matter of how much, uh, but I, I try to stay away from um, properties that don't have access. And I also, I'm not a huge fan of properties with HOAs, uh, which again, there's a market for that, but that's just an additional expense that you've got to carry uh, while it's in the process of being sold. And once you tell a buyer that it's an HOA, there's a lot of buyers that are turned off by, by HOAs as well. They don't want to deal with any associations of any kind. And so those two things are, are probably the ones that might raise some flags. But again, if the price is right, I'll buy it. Uh, but it's just, it, 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 it's a negotiation point for me at that point to the seller to say, hey, we offered you 2000, but look, your property doesn't have access. Uh, it makes it very difficult. The value of it is way lower than what I thought it was because I was offering it thinking it, 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 it did have access. So we can only pay 500 bucks for it. Take it. I mean, you'll be surprised. You're like, yeah, whatever. Just I want to get rid of it. Um, and so those those things are, are the ones. And, and of course, the main thing you have to be on the lookout for is to make sure that the 
person you're talking to has title to the property and make sure that there's no break in the chain of title. Uh, and so just so as more of an explanation on that, I actually won't close, won't do a direct closing with a seller if it's anything above $5,000 that I'm paying for it. I'll go through a title company and let the title company deal with the headaches of connecting the dots and making sure that that everything's okay. If not, if they're if they don't green light it, then I don't want to buy it because if whoever ends up buying it from me wants a title commitment or, or wants to make sure that they can have clean title, I'm not going to be able to provide that for them. And then it's going to be very difficult for me to, to sell that property. But that's kind of where I draw the line on that $5,000 mark. So that's unique. I've never actually heard that before. So let me try to make sure I understand if it's below 5,000, you might have like a VA check the title and make sure there's no breakage in title and things like that. No glaring weaknesses. But if it's over 5K, then essentially you're punting that to the title company. You'll pay for that title inspection that look at the title to make sure everything's clean. But really anything under 5K, I mean, it's not worth it to, to have spend the time or the money doing that that research exactly that's kind of where where i i kind of take the risk quote unquote of anything below five thousand i mean if it's close to five thousand i'll i'll make sure i i i mean i'll double triple check the title and everything because anything besides title i mean i think i can live with with the lack of access or um no utilities things like that i mean that's that's what we're buying and i i don't expect any of the properties that i'm buying to have utilities or have anything other than dirt on the ground um and so yeah that that's kind of where i draw the line and i say okay if i'm paying ten thousand dollars for a property i want to have title insurance on it yep yeah. And, and to your point about HOA, so I've talked to some people that they only focus on infill lots in big cities. Um, I would say the same that I'm about to say for that business, as I'm about to say for HOAs, like, I think you can make money there. I just yeah. think you have to specialize in that and you have to know what you're getting into that. Just like infill lots, finding the right infill lot that meets the right zoning criteria that doesn't have anything weird on it, that's going to cause it to not be billable in the future is the, the specialty knowledge that you bring to that transaction. But you're just talking about rural land, maybe 100 miles outside of Denver, Colorado, or 200 miles outside of El Paso, for instance, where you know the population in this country is only getting bigger. So eventually people will want to buy that land to develop, or they'll want to buy that land to go shoot guns, run RVs, be, be, put their camper on it and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's absolutely right. I think uh, buying those HOA lots and, and similar it's it's a it's a niche within a niche of the land investing and i and i and i i agree with you i think there's a lot of money to be made there i it just might take a little bit more time and a little bit more expertise but definitely yep yep going into this i think one of the biggest objections people have is when you're talking about 250 miles out of el paso i mean you are talking in the middle of nowhere in our country and um one of the things i often hear is like well who would buy that land um do you have any stories uh, that you could tell around unique pieces of property that you purchased and uh, were able to turn it into a deal? Just any anything that pops up in the mind there? Well, I mean, I had that mindset issue at the beginning, and that, that was a big hurdle for me with this business because I was looking at it through my lens, and I'm thinking there's no way... I'm buying a property in the middle of nowhere, but I'm not the customer. I mean, I'm not the buyer. And so there's a lot of people, I can tell you a, a, 
I don't know the percentage, but maybe 20, 30% of the profile of my buyers, they're truck drivers. And these are people that are out on the road. They like to be at, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. They see these dirt, uh, these uh, properties out in the middle of nowhere. They kind of learn to love them and appreciate them and, and see the value in them. And so they, they see value that I, as a person who lives in the city, doesn't see it. But I mean, I'm not marketing it to me. I'm marketing it to people who, who like these truck drivers who are just out there. They see it. They want to have it. I mean, there's really the, the, the majority of the people that buy the property from me have a similar storyline, which is, well, I mean, instead of having my money in the savings account, I'd rather just buy a piece of property. I can afford to make the $200 a month payment. And if the area develops out there, great. And if it doesn't, I'll leave it for my kids. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm from the mountains of East Tennessee, right? So I definitely appreciate having space and being out in nature and having rural, no access to internet and phone, uh, not every day, but definitely for a certain portion of it. But I think like the answer really that I try to tell people is you got to think that it used to be that we were only selling to the people we know the people in our city, the people that could read the same yellow pages we read. We're connected to 7.8 billion people on the earth these days. And I think 3.5 of them have internet access. That's who you're selling to now. I mean, yeah. there could be people in Mexico that know they want to migrate, people in India that know they want to come over, people in Nebraska that want to drive down to Texas. I mean, I think yeah. we're so interconnected today that just like Gary Vee talks about all the time with 7.8 billion people, there's 100,000 people that believe in the, the passions that you have and the things that you enjoy, even if you think they're weird. And that's the same situation here where you don't know who's out there that's looking for exactly what you have. You just yeah. have to have it before you can find those people who are looking for it. Absolutely. And to that point, I have one uh, British customer and one Mexican customer. So, yeah. I mean, these are people that are, don't even live in the country where the property is located, but they, they just want to buy land. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what was it? Uh, Mark Twain by land. They're not making any more of it. Exactly. That's right. Well, good stuff. Good conversation. I mean, I love this business model. We've had a couple of people on the show now that come talk about this business model because I truly enjoy the idea of how you have systemized your business, but also how you're taking small investments, getting your capital back immediately, and then turning those into passive income streams. Um, but before we end the show here, I, I want to get us into the five toppings. These are the questions we ask everyone. Our first topping or question is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Uh, recently, I read uh, The Psychology of Money. It's, yeah. a, it's a relatively new book. I think it came out in 2020. I don't know if you read it. I haven't, but it's been told to me several times to read it. And I've read uh, the Cliff Notes version of people summarizing it. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, in, in it, uh, I, I won't make it justice by any means, but kind of the gist of it, it, it's really not to do well with money. It's not necessarily about what you know or who you know, but more your behaviors and, and how you think about money. And it's just one of those books that I, I, I think it should be in every curriculum in every university around the U.S. just because it's, it's, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think uh, the message is 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 really good. So I, I, I'd recommend that book. Yeah, I'm going to have to go read it because th I think that's it, right? It's not really, um, money is about how you view it. And Warren Buffett talks about this idea of all the time 
you've got your competency areas and you're just watching balls being thrown at that competency area until one enters that competency area and then you swing at it and hit a home run. And yeah. that, that's a psychology of money, like to be able to turn an okay deal down to wait for a great deal, not knowing when that's going to come is a psychology of it. And yeah. definitely something I struggle with, that's for sure. But yeah. um, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day and the habits that you have. What is something that you do every single day? I, I mean, right now, actually, I, today I went to rehab, I hurt my knee running. And so I, I, but I like to exercise every day. And even right now where I'm a little hurt, I, I try to move and either go for a walk or something just to kind of get the blood flowing. I think it's, it's, it's good for the body and, and it'll help me live longer uh, for sure. And uh, try to learn something new every day, whether it's within my land business or listening to a podcast, uh, just to hear other points of view kind of get the, get the wheel spinning, uh, inside my head just to see what other options are out there. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's something I try to do every day. Move and learn something every day. I like yeah. it. Um, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, well, I, I not only received it, but I implemented it. And I think that's what helped me with the land business is, uh, to be focused. And so it's, um, I think, and I, I, to this day, I have that problem. It's very easy to get uh, shiny object syndrome and start chasing things just because in the moment, it sounds like a great idea uh, and, and you get distracted, but to have a good amount of focus on, on one thing and, and focus on that and, and exploit it and, and feed it and nurture it uh, for a, sustained period of time, I think that's the best way to actually see good results in, in whatever it is that you're doing. Preach. I wish, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you about tips on that later. Cause that's definitely something I struggle with. <laughs> yeah. Um, our fourth one is what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Um, I think right now the, the lifestyle that I've been able to, to create for, for me and my wife, I think I, I, I try not to take it for granted, but I, I think sometimes I don't think about it so much, but it's, I, I'm really privileged to be in a situation where I get to work when I want, however many hours I want, I work with whom I want, and, and, and she doesn't have to work if she doesn't want to, and so that's, she, she had a booster the other day, uh, the COVID booster, and uh and she was feeling really sick. And, and she was the one who told me, like, we're pretty lucky that I don't have to go to work right now. I mean, I feel pretty shitty because of the, of the vaccine, but I don't, I don't have to go to work. And, and she has the opportunity to stay in and just take care of herself. And having the land business created that, I'm, I'm really thankful uh, for, for that. And I'm, I'm pretty proud that I've been able to, to stick to it. Yeah, that is definitely one of my goals of success or how I would define success is being able to work on what you want with who you want when you want. I mean, that's that is the dream right there. Yeah. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of an ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Uh, so one of my favorite books of all time, uh, I've read it a couple of times, is The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Uh, and it's by Robin Sharma. 
And he has a bunch of kind of self-help books, but I, I really like the way he writes and the way he communicates his points. So I think it'd be pretty neat to, to be able to sit down and, and share some ice cream with him and just, just pick his brain on, on how he thinks and how he comes up with these ideas and, and thoughts. It, I, it's somebody that I've really looked up to for, for a while now. He's uh he's the 5 a.m. club, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've heard him on several interviews and I agree the way he articulates some points is, is really good and something I aspire to one day be. Um, so yeah, that, I like that. I like that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's an interesting fella and, and yeah, he's, he's, he's the 5 a.m. club guy. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Roberto, fantastic conversation. Again, I, I love the model. I love how you've been able to kind of free yourself from um, a corporate law school or corporate law job to to doing what you're doing today. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you, where could we point them? Uh, well, I'm, we're going to share with you a link so that if they want to learn more about the uh, land investing business, they can do that. We're going to give them some free stuff there. I, I, I think it's the launch kit uh, that the land geek provides, which gives you kind of a roadmap of, of how the land business works. Uh, and they they can schedule a call there also to learn more about the program. And, and I'd be happy to jump on a call with them as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time and look forward to having you back on. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.